Welcome to the She Plays on Women's Football podcast. I'm your host, Harry Chan. This week, we come to you one day early on Wednesday because the results of the Women's World Cup 2023 bid will be out on Thursday. We will talk more about that in our Crash Course segment in focus. But first, some news from this week. Orlando Pride have withdrawn from the NWSL Challenge Cup in the USA after six of their players tested positive for COVID-19. Pride, whose squad includes six-time World Cup Player of the Year, Marta, and a host of US internationals, were due to compete in a nine-team tournament starting on the 27th of July in Utah. NWSL is said to be the first league to resume following the coronavirus pandemic, which halted sport in March. Glasgow City head coach Scott Booth said that Scottish women's football will hopefully be able to restart sooner thanks to a £250,000 donation from philanthropist James Anderson. SWPL1 clubs in Scotland will receive around £14,000 each, and second-tier teams, £6,250 each. Booth said that, quote, it has been really tough not knowing what's happening and also to understand the financial implications of getting back to playing football. Now, the women's game in Scotland has no date in place for a return to training or matches amid concerns over COVID-19 testing costs. In addition, Glasgow City will face Wolfsburg, on the 21st or 22nd of August in a one-off tie in Spain in the Champions League. The Germans are back in action, but Glasgow City has only played one game since November after football in Scotland was halted and has shown no sign of returning, with the last game being played back in February. Team manager Laura Montgomery said that, quote, we are the only team in the last eight whose season finished last November. Everyone else was playing the traditional men's season. We've now gone through two major transfer windows, so our player pool has been ravaged more than theirs have, but we just need to get on with it. She also said that having a new date for that contest means that they will likely resume training in July. Meanwhile, Gillingham have ended support for the women's team, Gillingham Ladies, saying that the decision was, quote, in line with other measures taken due to the current circumstances and in regards to the restructuring of the club. The senior women's team will remain in the southern region of the third tier of the English pyramid, continuing as an, quote, independent entity. Now, West Ham United women's captain and England defender Gilly Flaherty said that Gillingham's men's setup, quote, should be ashamed, adding on Twitter, quote, I actually feel so fuming over what at the Jills FC have done. It's disgusting and shouldn't be allowed to happen. In other news, Everton striker Chloe Kelly has opted to leave after coming to the end of her three-year contract. The 20-year-old England striker, who has four caps, turned down the offer of a new deal. 
Former England midfielder Anita Asante has left Chelsea alongside fellow defender Diana Cooper following the expiry of their contracts with the WSL champions. Asante, who began her career at Arsenal and has also played in the USA and Sweden, has not played since tearing her quadricep tendon in October. England's Lucy Standforth and Scotland's Chloe Arthur will also leave Birmingham City women when their contracts expire at the end of June. Standforth, who was part of the Lionesses squad at 2019's Women's World Cup, played 43 times for the Blues. Former Sunderland star Stanforth submitted a transfer request last summer, but stayed for 2019-2020 season and helped the Blues reach the quarterfinals of the Women's FA Cup. Arthur, who was also in France for last summer's tournament with Scotland, made 44 appearances for the club. Manchester United woman winger Christy Hansen, who's 22 year old, and defender Amy Turner, both of them have extended their contracts until the end of the 22-21 season. Hansen and Turner both joined the Red Devils in July 2018 after the reformation of the women's team. Meanwhile, Wales national Josie Green has signed a new two-year contract with Tottenham Hotspur Women. She was named vice-captain for 2020 and led the team for the showpiece games away at West Ham's Olympic Park and home to Arsenal at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Forward Gemma Davison, 33 years old, who is also at Tottenham, has also signed a new deal in North London that is reportedly one year long. We'll be back. Before we begin our episode in focus, we just want to let you know that at the time of recording, we still had three bids from Japan, Colombia, and the joint bid, Australia and New Zealand. But just a few moments ago, we received information that Japan has withdrawn their bid and will support the joint bid from Australia and New Zealand, who are now even more likely to win given the current competition. Now, the Japanese Football Association chairman, Kozo Tashima, said that after the postponement of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games, the JFA felt it unlikely one country would be awarded two major women's football tournaments back-to-back. We will still talk about Japan's bid in our show because it was pre-recorded earlier, but this is just to update everyone that currently Japan has away withdrawn their bid. Welcome back to the show. This is my crash course segment in focus. Every week, I pick one hot topic in women's football and take you through the issue and try to answer the biggest questions surrounding the topic. This week, we talk about the bids for the Women's World Cup 2023. What we know now, there are three bids, Australia and New Zealand, the first joint bid, the second bid from Japan, the third bid from Colombia, and one retracted bid from Brazil, who are now supporting Colombia's bid. Now the votes will be the first to be held virtually during a pandemic, where 34 FIFA Council members will be eligible to vote, except the representatives from bidding nations, i.e. Colombia, Japan and New Zealand, will not vote. FIFA's recent report scored the joint bid 
of Australia and New Zealand at 4.1, Japan at 3.9, and Colombia at 2.8. The maximum score for this report is 5. Now, the evaluation reports are broken into two sections. The first one, infrastructure, taking up 70%, and commercial, which takes up the remaining 30%. Within these sections are weighted categories, such as stadiums, team, and referee facilities. Accommodation, transport, technical revenue, security, scheduling, environmental impact, human rights, and technological capacity. Now, following on from the 2014 World Cup in Brazil, in which a number of so-called white elephant stadiums were built and subsequently abandoned, sustainability and legacy have also become part of FIFA's assessment. So we are going to go through each bit here at ShePlaysOn and give you our prediction and reasoning, starting off with the lowest scoring report from Colombia. Now, much like the Men's World Cup in South Africa, in Brazil, and subsequently the Olympics in Brazil, their goal, Colombia's goal, is to utilize football to boost the local economy and those of the surrounding countries, which is why we see Brazil supporting the bid from Colombia. By bringing in tourists, they hope that local businesses can benefit from this influx of people and hope that people will spend eating, hotels, entertainment, etc. etc. It is also a good opportunity to introduce your country to the world, especially to erase certain stereotypes that, for example, the country is not advanced, unsafe, although some say this is debatable because some countries just hide their problems from tourists and their citizens end up in a worse place. One of the unique selling points for Colombia is that they are showing FIFA that this can be a springboard for women's football in South America. The argument being made is that women's football is pretty well developed in other regions, i.e. their competitors no matter in Japan, in Australia, in New Zealand, especially with a lot of resources available already in terms of money spent and investments by the government and other organisations. Now the idea is that the Women's World Cup 2023 could motivate South American countries to invest and introduce women's football to their citizens, seeing how hopefully successful Colombia will be. They also hope that the investors, organizations like FIFA or companies will ramp up support after seeing the potential of holding women's sports events in South America. Our verdict of the bid, it is very unlikely that Colombia will be given the opportunity to host the Women's World Cup in 2023. Now, we went through this very briefly last week, which is that the security and infrastructure, or the lack thereof, are strong deterrences for tourists, teams, players, coaches, and hence FIFA. Now, we'll be pretty surprised if Colombia wins the bid. We don't see sufficient justification, the FIFA report is not looking good, and there isn't sufficient momentum in Colombia to pitch themselves as something that they want to. That is, a rapidly rising women's football country. Next bit we want to talk about is Japan, who is known for their stability 
and hospitality. It's a very popular tourist attraction, tourists visit the place every single year, a lot of them visit different parts of it and enjoy the experience. They also have, Japan also have excellent infrastructure, of course. They are known for especially the high standards for hygiene, which would be a plus after the coronavirus pandemic. And the reception for tourists is great, as we have said. So in theory, it should be a good bit. And it is interesting to note that they outscored Australia and New Zealand uh, in terms of the bid in a category called accommodation. One of the important events to consider would be Olympics 2021. Now, originally holding the Olympics should have been a great marker indicator for development in the sporting sector. But the pandemic sort of threw the whole project against Japan's bid. And although it sounds counterintuitive, here's a reasoning why. The first thing. There are only two years now between the Olympics and the World Cup. Originally, the Olympics were in 2020 and the World Cup, or the Women's World Cup, would be in 2023. Now, the last country that did that, that is to have these two events, the World Cup and the Olympics, within two years or in two-year time frame, was Brazil. They held the 2014 Men's World Cup and then the 2016 Olympics. But the country since then, as far as we are concerned, has not exactly been in the best shape. We have mentioned the white elephant projects earlier, and the economic development promised by the government seems to be still missing in the country. Now, more importantly to note, in men's football in the Olympics, they are limited to under 23. That is, most players in football clubs playing at a high level do not play in the Olympics, but not for women's football. In women's football, players can go to Japan, and most of the time they will, to play the Olympics because it is one of those rare sporting events, international sporting events, where you get to play for a national team as a female football player. And if the World Cup is held in Japan, players will go there twice in two years. That's not exactly the most attractive plan to the players, and certainly it isn't the most attractive plan in terms of commercial uh, awareness because we have sponsors or we have TV broadcasters broadcasting in the same stadiums around the same climate or the same set of fans, the same set of events for two sporting events, women's sporting events within two years. The second thing, Japan is likely to suffer huge economic losses for the Olympics with a heavily reduced number of tourists. And as we have learned, some teams may even drop out because the Olympics Commission itself has already said that the Olympics in 2021 should be held as simplistic as possible, meaning that Japan probably will not be expecting a big crowd. It probably does not want a big crowd. And most importantly, people will be reluctant to go there and spending will, as a result, be reduced. Although maybe they'll get a bit more money in terms of the broadcasting rights, but we think that ultimately they will be suffering a very huge economic loss, not just of the pandemic, but also for the Olympics. Third, and definitely not the most insignificant point, Japan's response to the pandemic was not the best, especially when you compare to Australia and New Zealand. It, yes, 
did not screw up as bad as perhaps the United States. It doesn't have a very high death rate compared to other countries, but it basically ignored the whole pandemic until the Olympics were postponed. They wanted to show a picture that the country is fine. They don't want to lock down the country. They wanted the Olympics to continue. So they just ignored the whole thing, pretend that the virus is not there, and perhaps they dodged the bullet and they are not suffering. But FIFA won't want the same mess in their own tournament. Especially in the Olympics, we basically saw countries telling Japan, telling the Olympic Commission, that they won't join any Olympics in 2020. They withdrew the teams. So what FIFA probably does not want is a country that would pretend that the pandemic is not in the country and forcefully continue with a sporting event. So here is our verdict. We think without the coronavirus, it would have been a very competitive bid. Hosting the Olympics and the fact that the Japanese women's team is in fact rising. We think it still is a competitive bid. If we look at the scores, 3.9 and Australia and New Zealand's 4.1, it's only very, very small margin there. But we think that currently it's way less competitive than expected after the pandemic. Um, in the FIFA report, we can see that the concern is that the tournament, the Women's World Cup 2023, will be held in the summer. Uh, players, coaches have expressed that they don't want to play in the summer, and hence FIFA probably hates the idea. Because these players especially, they don't like the heat. Most come from European countries or North or South American countries where it is less hot comparatively. And when they play the competitive games, it is not as hot as what will be in Japan in summer. If we remember the Brazil World Cup back in 2014, the Men's World Cup, they had water breaks that got criticised. The Qatar World Cup, the Men's World Cup in Qatar in 2022, has drew a lot of criticisms. And it may have to be played in the winter because you have summer temperatures reaching 40 degrees Celsius. And of course, playing the games in the winter will disrupt European football schedules. It is perhaps correct to say that FIFA or any football organisation do not like to host games in countries where it is very hot in the summer. Another concern noted in the FIFA report is Japan's time zone. That is, it does not exactly match that of Europe or the Americas. That is, you have very awkward match times. So it's hard to market a game when you want to host in Japan at around, let's say, 1pm or in the evening or 6-7pm. This could translate to games being played in the early morning, in midnight, 3am games, meaning that women's football may not have the amount of detention that people hoped for, that FIFA hoped for, because fans may not be as willing to wake up at 3am or 6 in the morning just to watch a game. And the level of support is not the same, unfortunately, at men's football. So this is probably a risk that FIFA does not want to take. They don't want to sell games that are being held at awkward times. In conclusion, we'll be surprised 
not as much as Colombia if Japan wins the bid. They really haven't convinced FIFA that they are better than their counterparts, Australia and New Zealand, especially during the pandemic. Without the joint bid from Australia and New Zealand, Japan would have won the bid clearly. But we think that if you compare it with the bid from Australia and New Zealand, which we are going to do just in a moment, it is very hard to justify why holding the Women's World Cup 2023 in Japan is better than Australia and New Zealand. So the last bid to cover is Australia and New Zealand, the joint bid. It's known as the S1 bid. Now, we think, as you have probably known, that this is the bid that's most likely to win. We have said it very briefly last time, but here's a reasoning why. First of all, these two countries are rising football countries with a good momentum within the country. Australia has been producing top women players like Samantha Kerr playing at Chelsea, Caitlin Ford playing at Arsenal, Rhea Percival playing for New Zealand at Tottenham. Now, Samantha Kerr, Sam Kerr, she is not the so-called once-in-a-generation talent. She is, in Australia at least, part of this golden generation who, despite developing at a time where women's football is still an amateur sport in Australia, they have become some of Australia's most loved and most popular athletes. Now, Ellie Carpenter, who was last year voted into the Guardian's Top 100 Female Footballers of 2019, is one of the latest Australian players to burst into the international club scene after signing with Olympic Lyon just this week. As some of you might know, Olympic Lyon is basically the Real Madrid of men's football the best team of any international women's team. The W League in Australia is gaining attention. We mentioned it a bit in the last episode. And we know that the Football Association, the FA in Australia, has shown flexibility by moving the Olympic qualifiers around the schedule to adopt to the pandemic, while the league itself was willing to shift its schedule so that the qualifiers don't clash with the league games. So this amount of flexibility is probably more important now for FIFA, who knows that, unfortunately, in 2023, there could still be a chance that the pandemic or other issues could affect the scheduling of the game. Last but not least, as we have said so, sort of similar to Japan, these two countries are welcoming countries, good tourist reputation, One of the things that they might be different with Japan is that it seems to be less commercial. There are less high-rise buildings and more green space. They also have, in general, more land, giving them more places where fans can gather, can play the sport, can play football. So these may be some benefits that FIFA are looking at. The second thing is sort of something that popped up during the pandemic. That is your response to the pandemic and also a country's status. Now, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern probably handled the pandemic the best, we would say. She started the lockdown early on. She's very clear about the policies, what they want to do, what they're aiming for, what the government believes should be happening, and what the people have to do. And New Zealand, as we know, basically eradicated 
coronavirus within their borders. You have a more or less similar situation as on Australia.、Um, New Zealand probably did a bit better, but then both countries are more or less similar. And as you may know, the two countries have already opened up borders to each other. They can travel between Australia and New Zealand without quarantine and without needing to do specific health checks. Before the pandemic, Jacinda Ardern has been an icon fighting for women's right, and some of you may remember that she was praised for her leadership after the national crisis, like the Christchurch shootings. Now, this is the only bid headed by women. That is, the organizing committee is headed by women. So this would, of course, be an historical achievement for holding the Women's World Cup, and it will also bring good representation, a good image for FIFA, and especially for women's football. And we think that giving Australia, giving New Zealand this bid could help. Countries and FIFA itself gain international recognition. The communication and marketing strategy of the bid, according to FIFA's report, is quote very strong. It leans on various networks, including schools, tourism, media, and other ambassadors, and provides some highly innovative post-tournament legacy programs that FIFA would consider further engagement with. That's from the report, and of course by hosting the tournament in winter because. In Australia, in July, August, it's winter time. The joint bid avoids rescheduling risk due to weather and climate events. When compared to Japan, when we just discussed hosting in Japan and the problem of the heat, but also of potential climate events like typhoon or heavy rain. And perhaps some of you who watch rugby would remember that the Rugby World Cup last year was seriously disrupted by typhoons, and some games had to be called off, and the results have to be still made up in a sense to ensure that the tournament runs correctly. Time zones was something that we mentioned for the bid with Japan. In this joint bid for Australia and New Zealand, they are spread across quite a few time zones. Allowing FIFA to market different games to different regions. So in Europe, there may be a game at three a.m., which is a game at let's say eight p.m. in the Americas, and there may be a game in the Americas in three a.m. and it may be in a slightly better morning time or in the afternoon in Europe. So that means different games can be marketed for different countries or different markets, and it can still be held within the borders, of course, of the hosting countries. And so you don't have to host games. At awkward times in the host countries, just so that you can broadcast them. You can broadcast them at good times, host them at normal times, and shift the scheduling around again because of the number of time zones available to the hosts. So everything, as you might have realized, points towards at least for us that the S one bid, Australia and New Zealand will win. If they don't win, we predict them to be very very close to the winners. Probably Japan, in terms of the votes. Now, for the Women's World Cup in 2023, it would probably mean more than ever. The Women's World Cup in 2019, held in France, attracted record crowds and support for women's football spiked. But 
in the Women's World Cup 2023, it will be the first 32-team tournament, meaning that more countries will be part of the tournament. And more importantly, it will very likely be the first few major sporting events after the pandemic, meaning that the host country has to be ready in terms of public health and protecting tourists, i.e. you want local policies to make sense and be very clear, and people have to have confidence in the country. In any event, being the first few major sporting events, it also means that most people will be more interested to watch it, as we have seen in the assumption of the Bundesliga, where people haven't watched football for way too long, and hence a lot of people watch the games even if they don't usually watch. Now the results will be coming out today at 5pm UK time, daylight saving, and we'll update you through our social media and we will very likely have another episode in a few weeks time to talk about the hosting country in a bit more detail once FIFA selects who is going to hold the Women's World Cup 2023. Here's what else you need to know for the week. As we have mentioned earlier, results of the Women's World Cup 2023 bid will come out at 5pm UK time today. We will definitely talk more about the bid itself and the significance to FIFA in another episode. So remember to stay tuned to our podcast. So we talked a bit about the cryo lounge last time in our interview with Ellie Leak. So this time we want to ask you to support the Creo Lounge, which is a small business owned and run by West Ham captain Jilly Flaggerty. It helps athletes recover quicker using cryotherapy, and they are one of the many small businesses unable to receive government support due to policy loophole. You can find out more through the link in our show notes. Let's support one another through these difficult times. That's it for our show this week. If you liked the podcast, remember to rate, subscribe and share it with your friends and family. We'll be back next week. Thank you again for listening. I'm Harry Chan and this is the She Plays On Women's Football Podcast.